from our study through 1 John to preach something that is very near and close to my heart and very exciting about. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to the map in the back that says Paul's Missionary Journeys. Uh, that's where you're going to be. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning or if your map is hard to read, I'll have some pictures to help you understand what I'll be preaching about. But I want to tell you a story this morning about Paul's first missionary journey and an observation from this missionary journey that has been powerfully implemented in my life and is going to be implemented in the life of the church. For many years, as I was the associate pastor of High Point Church, I had the privilege of leading dozens of missions trips all around the world. I want to show you some pictures from some of the, the last trip I took. Uh, this picture was taken, I believe it was on October 20th, 2014. I preached in this building here. This was a facility that we built in a week with some men and women from High Point Church. Uh, over the years, we've built many, many churches like this, uh, as well as many, many homes uh, in Haiti after the earthquake. Pretty standard construction for us. They would have the foundation and the walls built, and then we would come in and frame in the trusses and, uh, and the roof. Some of you in this room have actually been on these trips with me, but this picture was taken right around October 20th, um, the third Sunday in October in the year 2014, just two years before we launched River Church. These are the people that I preached to. Two weeks, two weeks before we launched River Church is when these pictures were taken. These are the people that I had the privilege of preaching to through a translator. I've had the opportunity to speak many times in Africa and in other countries. This was in Tanzania. I've had the privilege of baptizing Tanzanian believers and Kenyan believers. Um, and so this was another special Sunday amongst a number of special Sundays that I had. But this was the second to last Sunday. Uh, this was where I was preaching. This is who I was preaching to. And then two Sundays later, I delivered the first sermon at River Church. And here's something that has been true about every mission trip that I've been on uh, with every team that I've ever led. You get to this point in the trip where you've literally slaughtered the fattened calf, you've had the big meal, the building's been dedicated, hundreds have shown up, you, you, get, the, uh, you get to exchange gifts and sing and dance, and these services last all day. They start mid-morning, and you don't leave till sometime mid to late afternoon. You break for a meal in the middle. Just a wonderful, wonderful experience. But this is what's true every time I've had the privilege of being a part of something like this. Once this service is over, the horse smells the stall. The horse smells the stable. The team is ready to go home. The team stops caring about Tanzanians. They stop caring about construction. They don't care how many tools are left on the site. Uh, it's time to go home. We've been on the road for a couple of weeks at this point. We've accomplished everything that there was to accomplish. Our hearts and our eyes and our minds are full. Our suitcases are full of the trinkets that we've purchased. And it's time to go home. This is the last picture I want to show you from this trip. This is the most beautiful church I've ever been in in my entire life. In my heart, this is what it looks like every Sunday when I'm worshiping. This is a church that was built by a businessman who was also the pastor. He was a spice merchant. And so he had a hustle, a full-time job during the week where he sold spices in the mountains of Tanzania. And he welcomed us into his home. We rode on the back of little 125cc Honda motorcycles up through the mountains. So we were like clinging in every possible cling to our riders, our drivers, as we were making our way to this very remote location. They were building the church as they could afford to build it to the best of their ability. And so that's why as you look through the gable end, you can see the 
mountains in the distance because they haven't had the money to finish the gable end. If you look at the floor, isn't that beautiful? It's unfinished. They only had enough money for the big stones. They hadn't had enough money for the small stones to fill in the gaps. And, of course, we were sitting on benches. They served us chai tea there and homemade spicy donuts made with the spice that this gentleman raised on his own property. So when I say our hearts were full, our bellies were full, we were in a very happy place knowing that our next stop was the airport and that we were going home. As awesome as the mission trips were, and, and will be for River Church when it's time for us to resume this type of programming, there comes a time in the trip at the end where it's time to go home. And the team gets very serious about going home, myself included. Uh, it, again, if you have your Bible this morning, please turn to the maps in the back and find the picture that kind of looks like this. This is a big view of Paul's first missionary journey. I'm going to take you through the story of this first missionary journey very quickly, just hitting the highlights. The story is found in Acts chapter 13 and 14. I'm not going to have the verses on the screen for this part of the sermon. I just want you to see what Paul is seeing as I give you a quick overview of his trip. So Paul's first missionary journey began in the upper right-hand corner of this map in a town called Antioch in what was then known as Syria. Today it is Turkey. Uh, Aleppo, where, of course, it's been in the news a a lot right now, is about 50 miles to the east of the upper right-hand corner. So we're looking at the Mediterranean Sea, and on the right-hand side of the map, we're looking at Turkey to the north. That's the large country to the north. Then we're looking at modern-day Syria, Lebanon, and, of course, Palestine and Israel as you work your way down the right-hand side of this map. So that's the big picture. The island that's there is the island of Cyprus. Now I'm going to go to the next picture, which gives us a little bit more detail. You can actually see the path that is narrated in Acts chapter 13, verses 14. The reason I'm going into this geographic detail will be obvious to you when we get to the big idea of this message which has an extremely practical application for us personally and also as River Church. And so I'm going to narrate quickly from the beginning of this journey to the terminus found in Acts chapter 14. So from Acts chapter 13 in verse 1, in the church that was at Antioch, where the trip is beginning, it's modern-day Syria, upper right-hand corner. I believe I have it marked with a star. Yeah, perfect. There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called you to. Then after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. The text continues. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they came down to Seleucia, the port town, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, the island. Arriving in Salamis, which is a city on the eastern shore of, of Cyprus, they proclaimed God's message in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John, also known as Mark, as their assistant, Barnabas' cousin. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, which is a city on the western shore of Cyprus, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named bar Jesus. And so the first stop, as they've been sent out by the church to proclaim the gospel, this was Paul's method, is that they would go into the local synagogue. He was a rabbi. He was a Jewish teacher, trained under Gamaliel from the time of his youth in the city of Jerusalem. And so he had an open invitation, basically, as probably 
the smartest man in the room to come and preach in these synagogues. And so when Paul became a Christian, he spent nine years in his hometown of uh, Tarsus, and then he began touring local churches and, and preaching in local churches. But it was his normal practice to go into the synagogue, respectfully listen to the teaching from the Law and the Prophets, and then he was usually given an invitation to speak as the highest trained man in the room, and he would then present the gospel. This is what they did in many, many stops all along the island of Cyprus until they got to the very western shore, and they ran into this evil guy who had the ear of the governor, the leader of Cyprus, and was preventing him or trying to prevent him from hearing the gospel. And so to sum up Paul's experience, he was with his friend Barnabas. In Cyprus, they ran into an evil dude. They ran into some resistance. They ran into someone who didn't want to lose the authority that he had by having the ear of the governor. He was afraid that the governor would become a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ and stop being manipulated by this evil guy, a magician, a sorcerer, someone who purported to be able to see things in the spiritual realm. Long story short, Paul confronts him and tells him that he's going to be blind for a season. You think you have second sight. You think you have the ability through your magical arts to see things that no one else can see. You're going to be blind for a while, and you're going to be led around by somebody. So the man was literally struck with blindness. Paul said, we've done all that we can do here. They got on our ship, and they continued their journey. And you can pick that up in chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. But again, just stay focused on the map or the map that you have in your Bible. Take a look at where he's going and the pattern that's happening here. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, the southern shore of modern-day Turkey. John, however, Mark, left them and went back to Jerusalem. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Antioch in Pisidia. I know it's the same name as the city that they started from, but don't be confused. One is in modern-day Syria, one is in modern-day Turkey. So this Antioch that they're now in is in the state called Pisidia. So it's called Antioch of Pisidia. You can see it on the map. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the Law and Prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message or encouragement for the people, you can speak. Paul presents the gospel. The people are enraptured by Paul's ability to tie in the history of the Jewish nation into the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they say, Next week, will you tell us more about this? And many of them followed Paul and Barnabas around for weeks, hearing them speak of what we know of as the Old Testament and the connection to the New. While their popularity increased as the word was being accepted with great acceptance in Antioch of Pisidia, the reigning Jews and leadership began getting jealous. And so the text goes on to say that some of the leading women and men, the first men of the town, Antioch and Pisidia, started causing trouble for Paul and Barnabas. And so like they met resistance from an evil guy in Cyprus, now they're meeting resistance from, from people who were jealous, and they began abusing them verbally. The text says that they began insulting them verbally. So things got a little hot for them in Antioch. The text continues in chapter 14, verses 1 through 2. The same thing happened in Iconium. So they traveled to the east a little bit, as you can see on the map. They entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who, received, who refused to believe stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. 
So they ran into an evil dude in Cyprus. They ran into insults, verbal abuse and insults in Antioch and Pisidia. In Iconium, the message was also being received. People were very curious about this message, and many disciples were being made. Churches were being planted over the time that they were there. This total journey was right around 12 or 1,300 miles, if you look at the course that I have out on this map. They traveled about 12 or 1,300 miles. The entire journey took about 18 months. And so it wasn't like they were just in town for the weekend. They were in each of these places for weeks, if not months. And so churches were being planted in these towns. In Iconium, great receptivity, miracles. The, the, the apostles were given the grace of performing miracles in Iconium. And so the place is beginning to go nuts. But the people from Antioch, came down, started causing trouble in Iconium, and Paul and Barnabas heard that there was going to be an attempted assault on their life made. And so, they took off again. After a few weeks, maybe a few months, in Iconium, they continued their journey to a town called Lystra. Acts chapter 14, verses 5 through 7. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to assault and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns called Lystra and Derby, and to the surrounding countryside. And there they kept evangelizing. In Lystra, even more miracles were being performed. Paul healed a man who had been lame from birth. The local priest said, this must be Zeus and Hermes come in physical form. This is why they have such power. Let's go make a sacrifice to them. Paul and Barnabas, with great acclaim, said, we're men with spirits just like you. We need this gospel as much as you do. We're just privileged to present it to you. Don't do this foolish thing. And so there was great receptivity. There were great miracles, great power. There was also great confusion. And it was in Lystra that the delegation of disgruntled people from Antioch, who had chased them to Iconium, had forced them out of Lystra, uh, uh, caught up to them in Lystra. Uh, when this is what we find happening there in chapter 14, verses 19 through 20. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowds and stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. After the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas, Derby. In Cyprus, they ran into an evil dude. In Antioch of Pisidia, they got insulted and were verbally assaulted and, and uh, made fun of, basically. In Iconium, there was an attempt made on their life that they were able to escape, but the mob caught up to them in Lystra and actually thought that they had succeeded in killing Paul by throwing stones at him until he stopped moving. They, they had met some stiff resistance. But along with the stiff resistance and the actual persecution, churches were being planted as they spent months in each of these towns because of the power of the gospel. And now they have run off to Derby. Will the mob chase them there? Will they finish what they started? Will Derby have a different response than the other towns that they have been visiting? Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 23, Paul and Barnabas make this massive decision. The reason I want you to see what their journey looks like is rewind in your mind and go back to Antioch now, in modern-day Syria, 
where the star is, that's that meeting where the leaders of the church were praying and they heard from the Holy Spirit that God had a job for Paul and Barnabas. As they were praying, what do you think the plan was seeing the course that they took? They started heading southwest, crossed Cyprus, headed due north, landed in Perga, traveled due north, and then began heading east. And now they're in Derby, and they have a decision to make. What lies 150 miles east of Derby, according to this map? I've labeled it with something special. Tarsus. Home. Where Saul was born and raised. His hometown. His Preston, Connecticut. Where he lived for nine years after he made his radical conversion to follow Jesus. He had lived in this town recently and had only been on the road for a few years. 150 miles east of Tarsus is Antioch. What do you think the plan was that they heard from the Lord? Big circle tour. They had traveled around 1,200 miles to land up 150 miles from Saul's hometown, only 300 miles from Antioch. The horse was scenting the barn. It was drawing to the near end of the missions trip. They had actually planted churches, which he then wrote to 13 times. Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, many of those churches, the ones in Galatia specifically, he just planted in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14. Death and and persecution, insults, evil guys, riots and crowds waited to the west. Home lay 150 miles to the east. Listen to the decision that Paul and Barnabas made, found in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 23. After they had evangelized that town, Derby, and made many disciples, planted a church, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. In the face of continued persecution, in the face of these people finishing what they started, literally thinking they left him for dead in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas begin a multiple month, over a thousand mile journey, retracing their steps backwards. On Paul's second missionary journey, which your map will say, if you can figure out all the confusing arrows, he starts in Antioch, first stop, Tarsus. It's not that he didn't know the way there. Second missionary journey, he actually does this loop backwards. First missionary journey, he comes within 150 miles of home, 300 miles of the church that sent them out, and he goes back from whence he came. Why? Strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, quote, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. This was Paul's logic. If I almost died planting these churches, what about the people who actually live there? What kind of resistance are they going to face? I was a stranger, but these are friends and neighbors. What is going to happen to them moving forward? These are brand new baby churches. They're 18 months old at the most. Most of them are less than a year old. What is going to happen to these churches? 
just as if, that's, if this is how they treated me, the apostle, the one who was actually saved by Jesus himself and had a vision of him in his resurrected form, knocked me down, blinded me, healed me, baptized me, saved me, and gave me this message. If this is how they treat me with my authority, what are they going to do to these poor people after we're long gone? And it's friends and neighbors and family and people that they know and these brand new baby church in very hostile environments, dangerous environments. So we begin to get some idea about why Paul turned back from home. So how, what is the best thing that they could do? How could Paul and Barnabas, at the risk of their lives, go back into these towns where churches have been planted, people have become Christians, and do the best that they could to guarantee that these churches survive the persecuting environments that they were planted in? The challenges of a pagan culture. Continuing in verse 23. When they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They went back with one message, with one action plan. The message is, hold strong. The gospel is able to save you. The journey is going to be difficult. The path is going to be rough. It may come with troubles and persecution. So they came with that message and proclaimed that message. And then they did something about it. The text says that they appointed elders in every single church that they had planted. Then they went home. Your map will continue that they they went back to Antioch and Pisidia, traveled south to Perga, where they then preached. They didn't preach on the inbound trip, but they preached in Perga on the outbound trip. And they got on a ship and bypassed Cyprus and sailed back to Pamphylia, which was the coastal town, and then marched into Antioch and gave a report to the church in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas, risking their own well-being, turned from home and guaranteed the well-being of the new churches by establishing elders in every church that they planted. Multiple pastors. There's something that we find in the New Testament about these people who are appointed elders. They're always men, and there's always more than one. They're biblically qualified. The qualifications are listed in 1 Timothy and in Titus. They're always appointed by an existing pastor, or in this case, by an apostle. And they have a couple of clear functions. Paul obviously thought it was worth risking his life to go back and appoint multiple elders in these churches. He could have gone home. Turning from home, he went back with a message of encouragement and actually implementing a leadership style that would give the chance the best possible opportunity that they had to survive the culture of their day. In Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 28, we begin to get an idea of what elders did in the first century church. These verses will be on the screen. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. Luke writes, This is the words of Paul as he is uh, saying goodbye to some friends. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of everyone's blood, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan of God. Later on in Paul's life, after his first journey, after his second journey, but before his third, 
the Lord called him to Jerusalem, and then he was arrested, and, and the rest of his life ended up in prison. It's considered his third missionary journey, if you will. He went back to some of the churches that he helped plant. This church was in Ephesus, and he met with the elders on the shore. And he, and, and he begins to tell them, I'm never going to see you again, but there's some things I need you to know about me as an elder and about you as an elder. The first thing that he shares from them, with them from this text is that Paul says that he is innocent of everyone's blood because he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole plan of God. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 20. One of the primary responsibilities of someone who is an elder in a local church is to be accountable for the distribution of the gospel. That to the best of his ability, nobody's going to hell that day because they don't know about the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and when, the, when the Bible talks about this, they call it as preserving the responsibility of shedding blood. That if they hadn't heard the gospel and someone was there who could have shared the gospel, aren't they responsible for their, for the, their death? And so it's a very serious responsibility. And Paul says that I, I have been 100% accountable. I have given you the whole counsel of God. You can't claim that you don't know anything about Jesus and the power of his salvation because as an elder, and I'm charging you elders of the church in Ephesus to do the same. The second thing about accountability, why there's always more than one elder, is that there's also an accountability for that elder himself. Paul was entrusted uh, on at least one occasion, if not two, to bring large amounts of money from the church in Antioch down to Jerusalem. He always traveled in a group with other pastors and elders and disciples. And so elders, a plurality of elders, also provides accountability. Not just for the gospel proclamation, so that it's thoroughly soaking the region by having more than one guy who's doing this, but also for their safety as well. That they, in turn, are being held accountable as well. And so more than one elder leads to great accountability of the gospel as well as personally. Continuing on in the text, Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed to you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul says that a plurality of elders or more than one pastor in a church leads to armor, that the church is now protected, both on the outside, from people who would seek to hurt the church, and from the inside, people who would seek to have false teaching. And so we see every time elders are mentioned in the New Testament, there's two things that are unique about elders in the New Testament. It's always a plurality. There's always more than one. And there's a number of Greek words that are used that are translated elder, overseer, bishop, or uh, the word pastor is actually never used. The word shepherd is instead. And they're used interchangeably. And so there's a number of functions that are described by these different tasks, but it's all wrapped up under the larger term, which is more often than not translated elder. Elders provide for accountability for the gospel and for each other, their own personal accountability. And elders also provide armor for the church from attacks from the outside, from the culture, but also attacks from the inside regarding false teaching. There's only one other thing I'd like to share with you regarding elders this morning, and then I'd like to wrap this up with the practical application. Uh, because you might be wondering, as we're approaching the fifth birthday of River Church, I'm the only guy that's an elder. I'm the only one that's a pastor. So where is my accountability? Where, how am I providing the best armor possible for River Church? And the answer is, by myself. And so there's, there's a problem there. There's a tension there as you study through the planting of New Testament churches. 
the Apostle Paul thought that a plurality of elders was worth risking his own well-being and not going home, but rather going back into the face of danger to make sure that there were multiple pastors in each of the churches that he planted. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 and 18. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you guys have elders, you have pastors, you have overseers, you have bishops, you have shepherds. Words are being used interchangeably to describe the same office in the New Testament church, what we would call a pastor. Don't make these guys miserable. Obey them. Serve them so that when they look at their service of the local church, that they can do so with joy. Not that every day is going to be joyful. Paul will be the first one to tell them that. But that in general, that our pastors would be able to serve with joy. Continuing in verse 18, the writer of Hebrews says, Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. And so for our elders, we're, we're to obey them as they rule the church and give direction, as they hear from the Lord and cast vision for ministries and what the church will and will not do. Every church has its own vibe and flavor. Obviously, for every church, we have a passion for outreach. Where does that come from? Right here. I'm a spiritual impact. I've heard directly from the Lord that we're to be bold in the work of evangelism and outreach, and we leverage everything to do so. That's come from me. That's where that's come from. And as River Church, you guys are doing a great job following or being humble to or obeying that direction that the Lord has given you as the planting pastor of River Church. And so you guys have done a wonderful job in obeying some of the kinds of things that uh, I have implemented over the first five years of River Church. I'm very grateful for that. I can look back of these first five years with great joy and, and much gratitude. And we are to pray for our elders because to the best of their ability, they're keeping their conscience clean. We have to believe that our pastors did not get up in the morning with the goal of making us miserable or poking us in the eyeball. And so we should be praying for our pastors, pastors, as New Testament teaches, because they are doing their best to keep their consciences clean as they lead us. And so elders provide accountability inside and out, armor inside and out, and the church's responsibility is to obey and to pray. And so there's much more that could be said about elders, but I want to tell you why next Sunday is so special. There's a number of reasons that next Sunday is so special. It is the fifth anniversary of the first time that we had services here in this building at all, actually. And so while our church service is going to be fairly normal, we do have uh, some guest worship leaders that will be joining us for next Sunday. Chris and I saw Ezra and some of his new friends from Gordon College will be leading the worship set next Sunday, so we're very grateful for that. Uh, that's going to be special. We're staying in this room after church and having a meal together. We're going to share the results of our faithfulness as we've been responsive to uh, what the Bible says about tithing. The Lord has been moving powerfully, and I'm going to give a report kind of summarizing what we've seen for the month of October as we have made decisions of faith in September and followed through into October. Uh, I, have, I have a present for you. It's very cool. So, if for no other reason, presents are fun. So, that's going to be special. And finally, we are going to do something which was illustrated in this text. Over the course of this summer, I have spent months, and I have traveled thousands of miles, and 
I've spoken with many other churches and their leadership teams, and I have come to the conclusion that the best thing I can do as the flanking pastor of Rivers Church is to call men to join me as a fellow elder. I'm always going to be the planting pastor. Like, that's always going to be the way it is. But I'm not the only biblically qualified guy to lead a church sitting in this room. There are a number of us. And so over the summer, with prayer and fasting and counsel, I called two men to join me for a year of what I'm calling exploratory eldership. That they will begin functioning as elders and that we will go through a year of discipleship and training together. We will codify what it looks like to have a plurality of elders or pastors here at River Church moving forward. And that we'll be able to provide greater guidance to what that looks like as River Church goes into its sixth and seventh year. And I'm meeting with them twice a month. One is for a time of intentional prayer. And the other is for a time of intentional discipleship, Bible study, and having conversations about the future vision of River Church. Uh, future vision of River Church. These two men are Kevin Thompson and Todd Osowski. And they have agreed that God has called them in this capacity. It is on their heart to serve the church. And this is exactly what this means. It means that as their ability to be an elder, that they feel from the Lord that there are times to turn from home and prioritize the church. That's the call. That's what they've accepted to do. It's not abandoning their homes. One of the biblical qualifications for being an elder is that they manage their own homes well. So much so that there are times in the life of an elder, even though they're very close to home, even though their heart might be for home, that they will turn back regardless of what lies in front of them for the sake of the church. And so these two men have accepted that call. And what we are going to have the opportunity to do at our birthday breakfast lunch is to ordain them. Because you just didn't you see in the text that I have gone through a season of prayer and fasting. I have heard from the Lord. I have called them. They've been obedient to that call. They have accepted it. And as a church, we are going to extend a, a hand towards them. And we are going to pray and recognize that I'm not moving forward alone anymore. That it is time to adopt the model that I see in the New Testament. There's always more than one for the reasons that I have given this week. And so I'm very grateful for them. I'm very grateful to be able to make this announcement. And I hope that you're able to join us because it's a true party. We have done a good job growing in the first five years. And I've been very grateful uh, to have been able to lead during that time. But it is time for us to grow in a new way. And it begins with adding a plurality of elders to River Church for the increased armory and prayer and protection and leadership and vision and care that comes with following the feet of Jesus. And so I'm wrapping up our time together this morning. And what is the personal application? Well, there are a couple. The first is that that's a big deal. I don't know if, if you're anything like me. I've never been in a church where there's been more than one elder or more than one pastor. I've only ever been in a church where there was one pastor. And maybe there were some other folks that helped in the various capacities. But I've never, I've, I've never been in a church, I've never served at a church where we were equal in authority, but not in experience. Does that help? These guys are equal in authority. I am accountable to them. But obviously we have different experience levels. And so I'm always going to be the planting pastor, but they all bring unique things to the table as well. And for the next year, they're going to help me define what it means to be an elder so that we can begin a discipleship program of mentoring men 
into leadership. Some will be called to be pastors. Some will be called into the workplace. Some will be called as missionaries. Some will be called to do a better job of leading at home. But the model for men's ministry and discipleship is going to be rooted on what these two guys and myself are going to experience for the next year. Walking through the scripture, wrestling with the text, and praying together. Because as we experience it as elders, we will now have the opportunity to share that experience with the other men of the church and encourage them to grow into the leadership that God has called them to. This is exciting stuff. It's time to grow. And that's the way we're going to grow. So I'm very excited about it. So I, we're going to celebrate for all the reasons that I mentioned. So that's the biggest application for us as a church. What is the personal application? Maybe you've never been towards a church before, and this is kind of a weird sermon for you to jump in. What does it mean? Open your Bibles to the nearest map of Paul's first missionary journey. That's just crazy. Why can't we just actually read from the meat of the thing instead of looking at the pictures in the back? That's an excellent and valid question. But here's the big idea. Here's the spiritual application for each of us this morning. The personal application is that here's the message of the gospel. Let me summarize it for you. Jesus left home and faced great danger and persecution so that he could equip his church and his saints Jesus left home. That's the message of the Bible. That's the good news. God came and he conquered and he left the presence of his Holy Spirit and the institution of the church as his church. And so maybe this morning you never thought of the gospel that way or never resonated with you in a special way and you want to be a part of that. You want to accept the fact that Jesus left home for you and faced great danger and persecution and even death so that we could hear of the Lord's kindness and love for us. And that prayer is very simple. Heavenly Father, I do not. Why would you need heaven for me? Why would you need the joy of heaven for me? But I can't deny that it's recorded in the text. There's even pictures of it in the back. It's pretty amazing. Heavenly Father, I humble myself to the fact that you must teach me your faith. I don't always feel that way. But this morning, right now, I want to say thank you. On your return trip, I now have faith that I'll be coming with you. In Jesus' name, amen. That's going to be a great prayer to jump in. It's also an opportunity this morning for us to pray and recommit ourselves as a church. It's going to be challenging. Maybe you've never been in a church with a plurality of ethnic groups. You're a little nerve-wracking. You have questions. I get all of that. Let's start by praying. And we have the Reservoir Forever designed to be right there with you. But I pray that you would encourage these men even today as we prepare for ordaining them next doing exactly what the text says, that this week in the prayer of baptism, these elders were appointed by existing pastors and elders to serve the church, men who will turn from home in the face of even personal danger and persecution, that they may shepherd those who need to be shepherded. In your son's name, Heavenly Father, we're just trying to follow your model. We, we, when we look back over our lives, there are times where we knew that we were not walking in your will. We knew that there are times we're walking in your will, and then there's times like today where, for me, I realize I could have done a better job walking in your will. But for reasons best known to you, we launched this church without another pastor. So, Father, we're very grateful for what you've done for the first five years of this church, and we're also very grateful for our opportunity to be obedient to your son. 
Father, would you give us great wisdom and great love for each other as we move forward? Because we're simply going to follow your footsteps. We're going to read the Bible for ourselves, pray it through, and then with great humility seek your wisdom. And, and honestly, Father, next Sunday, we, we ask your presence as we celebrate the Jesus of the Savior as we made for the first time.